Namaste and good evening to all of you. This is our first meeting from this year, the first satsang. The satsangs are meetings in which I'm speaking to the whole school and you can bring guests from outside as well. Everybody is invited for the satsang. The satsang is for the time being under the form of spiritual discourses, teachings. And in the last season, in 2011, I started at the request of several of the older pupils of the school to offer teachings from the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita was considered by Mahatma Gandhi as the most important spiritual text of India. He called it the Bible of the Hindus. And the Bhagavad Gita was universally recognized by great yogis like Swami Shivananda, Sri Aurobindo, Paramahamsa Yogananda and others and others as a fundamental text of spirituality, as a text of great truth, as a text of great profoundness. Bhagavad Gita is a chapter, a volume from the great epic called the Mahabharata and in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, an avatara, a divine incarnation, one of the major divine incarnations of India, Krishna talks to his friend and disciple Arjuna, giving him advice in a very, very delicate situation, because Arjuna is supposed to unfold a sort of holy war, a sort of divine war, and he is split between his duty to the truth, to the righteousness that this has to be done, and at the same time he is split between the fact that he is about to commit an act of war. And thus he is totally split, not being able to understand. And in this situation, Krishna gives him a crash course in spirituality, in karma yoga. Bhagavad Gita is the ultimate Indian text on Karma Yoga. And uh, this season, I'm simply going to continue with the commentaries. In the end of the previous season, I just managed to finish chapter 4. It is in my intention, and I will see if it goes according to the plan, that I will finish the commentary of the first six chapters. Because the, although Bhagavad Gita contains 18 chapters, there are further other chapters which speak about other spiritual teachings and they are part of the narration of the Mahabharata. But the basic spiritual teachings about the spiritual truth and Karma Yoga are given by Krishna in the first six chapters. That is why it is my intention for clarifying this issue to comment this text, the first six chapters of this text for the pupils of the school so that the issues of spirituality, especially karma yoga, can be understood. Karma yoga is in itself one of the major branches of yoga. Sometimes it is looked upon, it is looked down upon, like it's always just some external extrovert thing. But actually Krishna is not at all of this opinion. It is important to comment, I could just recommend why don't you read the text, but it is important to comment it also because the text 
is written sometimes in a metaphoric, parabolic way. Krishna uses many similes and parables. Some things are not described in the very language of yoga, chakras, resonance, energy, especially this angle which we share here in Agama Yoga, of tantric yoga, of yoga with energy, with chakras, with vibration, with levels of consciousness. This is a rare point of view and the technology of it is very hidden, it's very esoteric. And because of this, I am interpreting the text for you also from the standpoint of this yoga. As I said when I started this commentary, Krishna's text is supposed by some Indians to come from some 4,000 years ago. Therefore, it belongs to a very, very old age of the Indian spirituality. And because of this, it corresponds to a very, very old spirit. As the history advanced, with Buddha 25 centuries ago, with Patanjali, with Matsyendra and Goraksha and the advent of Hatha Yoga, with the medieval tantric tradition of India, with different forms of bhakti, and then with the modern gurus of India, Ramakrishna and Yogananda and the likes of them, yoga has been reformulated and many spiritual things have been updated in terms of language. But Bhagavad Gita comes and the message of Krishna comes from a very, very old period of the Indian spirituality which is closer to the long-gone yugas and because of this the mentality is different, the values are different, the spirituality of one like Krishna is more abrupt. He simply thinks like Jesus that may the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like there is no compromise. Krishna is a very little compromise and he believes in the very old values which are the pillars of spirituality and which were the pillars of Sanatana Dharma of the eternal Dharma and that is why also the discourse of Krishna gives us a sort of reference point like how far did humanity go from that point humanity has gone far from Buddha's time humanity has gone far from Jesus's time humanity has gone far from the medieval spirituality but from the time of Krishna Krishna is like before, way, way before the Roman and Greek antiquity of the West. He comes from times which are, for some Western cultures, simply belong to the primitivism, to almost the Stone Age form, forms of society. And that's why, of course, the spirituality of Krishna is very different, very radical, at the same time very fresh because it comes from a society where people had a different sort of compass where people were looking onto the spiritual things in a much more sharp and clear way so in the first chapters Krishna has announced to Arjuna different issues Arjuna was confused and Krishna tried to clarify and clarify and clarify and we are in the middle of this river 
discourse, this river presentation made by Krishna in which he is showing to Arjuna different angles. It is presented in the text as if Arjuna, who till the end of this presentation doesn't really understand, he is of a very strong character and he doesn't want to let himself convinced too much and Arjuna all the time has questions. He wants to know one more thing. He wants to really cross-check Krishna on all the things which he says. And Krishna very patiently presents to him the truth from this standpoint, from this standpoint, from this standpoint, thus generating a very global, a unique view on yoga spirituality, and in particular, especially in the first six chapters, on their main subject, which is Karma Yoga, because basically what Krishna wants to tell to Arjuna is, Arjuna, act like a Karma Yogi. Now you are a Karma Yogi, you have to do a Karma Yoga, and this Karma Yoga is something extreme, admittedly, but still, if you don't do it like a Karma Yoga, you shouldn't do it at all, you are ignorant, you are, you are blinded by your own emotions, by your own thoughts. So here is how we get to the chapter number 5, which chapter 5 carries the very definition of Karma Yoga. It is called, the title of it is this, the Yoga of Renunciation of the Fruits of Action. The Yoga of Renouncing the Fruits of Action, which is what Karma Yoga is. So now Krishna focuses more on this. He spoke about the Yoga of Knowledge. He spoke about other things in which he first tried to enlighten Arjuna in a more direct way, like give him the knowledge and see him, show to him that he sees things in a skewed way, in an emotional way, in a blinded way, in an unclear way. But that was not enough, and thus his presentation continues. In the chapter number 5, it starts again with the question of Arjuna, which cross-checks him again, and says, the, the, the shloka, the first shloka says, Arjuna said, and what did he say? Renunciation of actions, O Krishna, though praises, and again yoga, like the yoga of action, he means, like first you say, give up action, then you say, make a yoga out of action. Tell me conclusively, which is the better of these two. Arjuna is a little bit thick-headed here because Krishna said it from the second chapter, but it, he said it lightly and Arjuna like tries to poke at every imperfection in Krishna's discourse and he says, because in the chapter number four, Krishna spoke about the yoga of knowledge, the jnana yoga, and there he was more metaphysical and he spoke about a form of detachment which comes from Vishuddha Chakra, which comes from knowledge, which comes from a Puritanism of a sort, in which the human being stays away from lowly things and prefers to do knowledge, pure knowledge, contemplation, meditation. And of course, Krishna nevertheless said that action is superior to inaction. It's one of the very, very, very famous verses, one of the ten top famous verses of the Bhagavad Gita. But 
Arjuna either didn't hear it, being so in so much in turmoil, or he actually pretends he didn't hear it, because he is not convinced and he wants Krishna, tell me more. So he says, what eventually, renunciation of action, like should I go in the forest and be just a hermit and do no action, retire, withdraw from the world, renounce action, or do action? He pretends he did not hear that Krishna told him, do action, but renouncing the fruits of the action. Do action in a special state of mind, in a special state of spirit, with consecration, with divine integration. And so Krishna patiently answers. It says, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, which would mean the blessed Lord God, Krishna is called Bhagwan. It's a name for God because Krishna is acknowledged in India as an avatar and therefore as God. And therefore the blessed Lord Krishna said, both renunciation and the yoga of action, like going into hermit asceticism and doing the karma yoga, lead to the supreme good, to the highest bliss. But of the two, the yoga of action is superior to the renunciation of action. It can't be said more clearly than this. Like Krishna simply slams it once more and nobody can contradict this kind of statement. Krishna says, and he said it before, in another word, action is superior to inaction. He says, if you choose to do a spirituality in which you do actions but in a detached way, that's superior to the choice of withdrawing from the world and doing no more actions. It is a much more skillful way of existing as a spiritual person if you do action, and that action is an action with consecration in a state of detachment, and therefore if that action is karma yoga, it is spiritual action. It can't be said, he says, but of the two, the yoga of action is superior to the renunciation of action. That simply answers clearly. And he says, he should be known as a perpetual sannyasin who neither hates nor desires, for free from the pairs of opposites, O mighty armed Arjuna, he is easily set free from bondage. So he says, know him, know this person who does the yoga of action with detachment, to be forever a man of renunciation, who neither hates nor desires. Try to realize, Arjuna, and that's a very, very extreme episode in Indian history, Arjuna is about to go to battle, where people will get killed. Any one of you has seen a scene of war. In war, people who get there, if you see one of these melee type of old-fashioned battles, people scream, shout, spout, and they strike at each other with anger, with madness. They go, they freak out. There is a lot of hate on a battlefield because it's kill or be killed. It's as simple as that. And that's why Krishna insists on this. He says, the one who neither hates nor desires, it's neither hates nor likes, nor has like or dislike. Like Krishna, I'm sorry, Arjuna, together with Krishna, 
is about to go to battle. And Krishna says, what I'm teaching you here, karma yoga says, go like to a picnic. Don't hate, don't like. It's not about like or dislike. Become neutral. Become like a witness to the whole thing. That's why he brings up the hate and the non-hate. He says, free from the pairs of opposites, he is easily released from bondage, O mighty arm. That is the whole point. Free from the pairs of opposites. That's one of the great themes and obsessions of the Indian spirituality. And this is what is taken by Buddha into his middle path. The middle path, the golden middle. Neither left nor right. There exists a middle that's free from the pairs of opposites. Like there is hate, there is like, and then there is something which is neither hate nor like, and which is the middle path, which is free from the pairs of opposites. This middle path is not on the same level with the other two. You have Rajas, you have Tamas, and then when they are balanced, you transcend them into Sattva, which is a third category, which is not just 50% Rajas and 50% Tamas. You have plus, you have minus, and then you have the state of androgenity or balance, which is a superior thing. In the moment when you reach the zero, there appears a third factor, which is superior to the previous two, which is like going one step deeper. It is exactly like you try to find a middle channel. It's exactly like in the middle there is a hole, and that hole leads to the next level. So as long as you put a beam of light to the left, to the right, it goes nowhere. It's stopped by the piece of paper, by the shield, by the screen. In the moment when it hits the hole in the middle, it shines through to the next level. And thus, this is what we call, and we teach it in the school at some point in the Kundalini program, this is what we call the law of three, as it was presented by Gurdjieff, as brought from the Oriental mysticism, from the Sufi mysticism, from Central Asian spirituality, and other sources. Gurdjieff formulated it as the law of three. And the law of three says this, the third part is higher than the first two. It's not just like a seesaw. On a seesaw, the left end, the right end, and the middle of the seesaw are all on one line. In the law of three, it says that when you reach to the center of the seesaw, you have a springboard which takes you one step higher. So it's a triangle. It's left, right, and the middle takes us here. So the three things form a triangle. It's the law of three. And that's why Krishna says you have to be free from the pairs of opposites. That's always been the obsession in Indian spirituality. And Buddha does nothing else but reflect this. Buddha has learned various bits and pieces from the Samans, from different other spiritual practitioners from whom he learned his first things of spirituality. Buddha did not invent sitting cross-legged or other such practices. He saw other people sitting cross-legged and meditating because he was not the first who was trying to practice spirituality. And before Buddha, we had Krishna and many others and Arjuna and many others in the Indian history. 
Of course, again, Buddha may have been born in a, in a place and at a time where real spiritual practice was decadent and he kind of had his own breakthrough and thus created a regeneration, a fresh stream of it. But remember that Buddha, in his thing with the middle path, he reflects something which is much older than him. And that older thing says, if you go into hate, if you go into like, attraction, I dislike, I like, then automatically you produce karma. Because these factors are factors of the brain which produce dislike, like, are just the sources of attachment. And because of this, automatically um, this produces karma. It produces ripples in the universe. And that's why the whole thing, not only for Krishna, not only for Buddha, but generally in spirituality, is to be free from the pairs of opposites. But of course, you can be free from the pairs of opposites in two ways. By not doing anything and still being free from the pairs of opposites. Like for example, you refuse to work this sort of slave work, which people have to undergo on, this, on the face of this earth to feed themselves. The sannyasins of India, the sadhus, the renunciates, they don't work. They don't do any work. They simply say, I'm stepping out of the human society. I will eat bananas in the jungle or whatever. I don't want to be the slave of anything, of not my family, not my boss, not my village, not my community, not my... I don't want to have to earn my life with the sweat of my brow. I want to do something else in my life. And therefore, you can say that the renunciate is against work but he's not he is not doing work physical work a job something to earn their living but theoretically they have to be free from the pairs of opposites he is not against work he is not for work he is not against family he is not for having a family he is not against sex he is not for sex but he has chosen the path of staying away because he has a project, he has a dream, he wants to do something and he understood that the way for him to do that is to stay away from things. And Krishna says, there is another way, there is the way to keep doing those things, like you can have a work, at the same time being detached from no work or work. You are not pro-work, you are not contra-work, but you do work because it's the right thing. You consider that this thing has to be done and you are not in it because it's, you are pro. Oh, everybody on this planet should work, must work. If you don't work, you are a parasite. And he is not against. It's just he is not concerned with it. He is free from this pair of opposites, which means this places that human being on a higher position. And everybody thought that to stay away from these, the best way to stay away is not to get involved in it. You don't want to have emotions such as love and hate. Okay, it's not called love, it's called like, attraction or hate. 
because love is not the opposite. Love is not the opposite of hate, truly. Love is one of these midpoints. Love is divine. What is the opposite of hate is desire, attraction, like, and that is not the definition of love. But coming back to our story, you can go away from these, most people thought, by simply still the mind playing a trick. Like, you have to let everything. If you don't want to have experiences of liking or hating, for example, the opposite gender, then you shouldn't go into a relationship. You should stay away from relationships. You can have eternal peace by not getting involved into relationships. As soon as you get really in, into relationships, you either get infatuated and you love them, you like them, you desire them, and when everything turns bitter, you hate them, you despise them, you turn against. Why not have peace in your life? But Krishna would say, go in the middle of a relationship and refrain from the likes and dislikes, just give this mature love, which is something completely different. It's not just an infatuation, which then is followed by hate. It is not a hill, which is followed by a valley. It's something else. That's why Krishna launches a bigger challenge. And he says, he should be known as a perpetual sannyasin, who neither hates nor desires. Because in India, this was the big thing. You could become a sannyasi. When you become a swami, even today, te technically, this is called to take sannyasa. And it's a sort of a vow of renunciation. But you do not renounce the world, especially if you are a tantric swami. Because the world is shakti. How would you renounce shakti? Shakti is our mother. We worship shakti. You renounce the attachment or the hate to the aspects of the world. It's a completely different meaning. <coughs> and in India, that was sannyasa. Only at that time, in this context, there were not many tantric people except Krishna. Krishna expresses the tantric option. And everybody thought that to be a sannyasi was to give up everything. When you gave up everything and you kept just one line of clothes or a robe, whatever it was, or you even abandoned your clothes and went naked into the forest, that was a sannyasi. Somebody who never cuts his hair, never shaves his beard, never does, no, never wears clothes, never works, never... It's a sort of a wild man who has gone into the forest and has renounced everything. And Krishna turns the tables. Krishna says, uh, the perpetual sannyasin is that who acts, as he said before, in the shloka number two, this being the shloka number three, he says is the one who acts, but who neither hates nor desire, free from the pairs of opposites, that he is easily set free from bondage. That's the dream of Indian spirituality, to set yourself free from bondage, moksha, mukti, liberation, which is the old Hindu word, the equivalent of enlightenment, spiritual realization, samadhi, or nirvana, the full spiritual realization. Krishna says, 
he changes it very discreetly. He said people think a sannyasi is somebody who runs away and because he has no clothes and he produces no food and he has no business or something, people say, oh my God, what a holy man, what a great power of renunciation. And Krishna tells you, and he will insist on it in the coming shlokas, truly I tell you that the whole issue is to get free from the pairs of opposites, not to stop from action. It's not about stopping from action. You can give up actions ultimately due to laziness, ignorance, family quarrels, calamity, unemployment, whatever has happened in crisis, happened in your life. But physical renunciation of objects is ultimately no renunciation at all. Because what is wanted is the renunciation of egoism and desires. That's what Krishna says here. And therefore, for Krishna, it becomes plausible that if you have renounced egoism and desires, then action is no problem. The problem is not the action. The problem is that in the action, you get caught by the action instead of playing it. As he said in one of the chapters before, he said, realize, Arjuna, you are like an actor that plays a role. When you play Hamlet, why would you forget that you are Walter and not Hamlet? Why don't you play Hamlet as it is just a part? And of course you've seen the best actors in the world are the actors which identify with a the role. They can cry, you can see on their face the emotions. They can really go into the role. It's a very bad actor, the one who plays it, but you can see that he plays it and he's actually not there too much. That's a very feeble actor. The question is, while you play the role of Hamlet 100%, can there still be a grain of lucidity left somewhere in your brain where you remember that you are not Hamlet, although you play it intensely and well? That is the whole point here. So, Krishna is very perceptive. He goes directly to the point. What is the moat point here? And he says, children, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi translated as the ignorant, but the original word was children, not the wise, as like people that are childish in their mind, foolish, ignorant. Children, not the wise, speak of knowledge and the yoga of action, or the performance of action, this karma yoga, as though they are distinct and different. He who is truly established in one obtains the fruits of both. He just spoke about jnana and Arjuna asked him, you speak about knowledge and thus going in the forest and meditating on Vishuddha and withdrawing purity and now you talk about the yoga of action. How am I going to reconcile them? And Krishna says, the ignorant and not the wise speak of the path of knowledge and the path of action as different. Like jnana yoga and kriya, oh, I'm sorry, karma yoga. They are different. Many people say, oh, you know, Swami, I'm a more contemplative person. Don't put me do any karma yoga. Why not do karma yoga when Krishna says they are not different? Only the ignorant sees them as different. If you see them as different, that's still a 
childish thing. It's a foolish, immature thing. He who is properly established even in one gains the fruits of both. So Krishna says, through karma yoga, you can reach enlightenment as you'd be sitting all day in your meditation and ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? And karma yoga do the same, are the same, amount to the same. This is forever a blow to whoever may consider that karma yoga is inferior. The problem is that many people that do karma yoga, they get distracted and they do it carelessly in all these active forms of yoga, such as karma yoga, such as the tantric path, in which you get involved and you do things, the biggest danger is that you get distracted and you start doing things mechanically, robotically, like everybody else does, and then you don't really do what you have set to do from the beginning. So it's necessary to have a teacher, it's necessary to have an actualization, it's necessary to have a reality check from time to time to make sure that you didn't forget what you set to do from the very beginning. But otherwise Krishna says, the path of knowledge, jnana, yoga, contemplative meditation and the path of action, only children can see them as different. Whatever one of them gives to you, the other gives. If you succeed through the path of jnana yoga and you enter into a contemplative state of samadhi, then tomorrow when you are going to do something, of course you are going to do it in a detached way because you have understood the nature of reality. You have understood the nature of spirituality. It is impossible for a person like Buddha that reaches nirvana that afterwards he decides to create the Sangha and the Buddhist lineage and he does it in an attached way and he says, ah, oops, sorry, I had not practiced karma yoga and I didn't know this trick. I had only practiced contemplative meditation. The contemplative meditation activates your sahasrara, you get enlightened, therefore you have the lucidity and the detachment and you understand that there is no other way to really do things except doing them like God does them, doing them like Krishna does them, doing them divinely. But it's valid the other way around. If you have done karma yoga and you have succeeded some moments of absorption, some moments of meditation in action, because that's what it is, it's a meditation in action. You sweep the alley, you clean something, you type something, you do something which is intellectual or non-intellectual work and for a moment you have the feeling that you got it. You are entranced, you are into it. Then you've got Jnana Yoga. That was a moment of spiritual insight. It was a moment of Samadhi in action. It was a moment of Bhava Samadhi actually because you didn't freeze and fall down like Ramakrishna in a coma. When you went in Samadhi, you kept on gently doing what you were doing and yet for a clear moment you were transported, you saw beyond the appearances, you saw beyond the surface of things. And that's why Krishna cannot be more clear than this. He says, stop making this division. Meditation is karma yoga, karma yoga is meditation. Of course you have to do 
both of them right and then it becomes the right thing and he continues Krishna is a man of great eloquence and he says in the shloka number five that place which is reached by the jnanis by the jnana yogis by the contemplative meditators is also reached by the karma yogis he sees who sees knowledge and the performance of action as karma yoga as one again he insists is just another way of saying the same thing but he says the state attained by man on the path of jnana yoga is also reached by those on the path of action he who sees sankhya and yoga to be one verily he sees and we had spiritual people of great action shankaracharya crossed india in south and north and east and west establishing re-establishing the practices of vedanta and many things in modern hinduism and vedanta buddha got enlightened at the age of 30 something then he apparently lived till the age of 80 something so he spent almost 50 years organizing teaching preaching creating the canons like a lot of years of staying in the world and doing action therefore again and again spiritual realization is related to action Krishna says there is a very incomplete view if you think they are different they are not different they just have to be done till that point where you reach oneness if you do karma yoga and you did not reach a state of samadhi it simply means you haven't reached to the perfection of karma yoga exactly as if you did some meditation and you didn't reach the state of samadhi it means you did not reach to the perfection of meditation that does not disqualify meditation and that does not disqualify karma yoga it's simply that most of the people are on the path along the path most of the people are practitioners and therefore they are treading along the path of self-realization and then he says but because he said still that he prefers action so he has a thing he thinks action is more complete and of course that's the way it is I explained it so many times so in the shloka number six he continues and he says but renunciation like this sort of contemplative jnana he calls it renunciation running to live naked in the forest and giving up everything but renunciation oh mighty armed Arjuna is hard to attain without yoga and here of course he means karma yoga because he that's what he pits against each other he pits renunciation contemplate contemplative lifestyle with karma yoga and of course he said but he funnily enough he uses the double entendre his language is of course very very deeply shaded because he says yoga like yoga of action karma yoga but of course you can read also yoga in general like renunciation he says is hard to attain without yoga and then he says the yoga harmonized sage 
the sage who is intent on yoga, the adept of yoga, the one who is good at yoga, who has succeeded in yoga, proceeds quickly to Brahman. Brahman being a Vedantic name which is given to God. Krishna could as well have said, and he uses this formulation in other chapters, in other shlokas, he says the yoga harmonized sage proceeds quickly or quickly comes to me. He sometimes uses me because he is God and it's about attaining God. Here he uses a more neutral formulation, Brahman. It's a Vedantic statement to reach the Absolute, to reach the Enlightenment. And therefore he says, renunciation is hard to attain without yoga. Why? Because renunciation means detachment and detachment means Sahasrara. And for most people, Sahasrara is a city in China. And they go to the forest. But as I told you before, just physical renunciation of objects is no renunciation at all. It can be the first step. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. Correct, that's the first step. But then there is a transformation which has to happen. And that's why renunciation is not really an act of Sahasrara. The person who renounces can have an infatuation on Svadhisthana, Manipura. For example, we very often have in yoga, and I as a teacher know it better than everybody, that we have pupils who come to yoga and they are infatuated with yoga. They are not really maturely in love with yoga, for yoga, with yoga. They have a momentary infatuation. There are people, for example, who have a rich imagination. Very Svadhisthanistic people. And then for them, yoga is like a prince on a white horse. Oh, I discovered yoga. And these people go to the registration office and they say, I want to pay three years in advance. Is it possible? You know, like, I swear by God, cross my heart that I'm going to be here I found my home. My and while this feeling is adorable, at the same time, I know next year we won't see these people. They will disappear in the mist. Because these were Svadhisthanistic people who simply got horny at yoga. It's just an infatuation. And it's intense. They are intense people. And they are very attracted to yoga. But... The people who come from the heart, the people who come from the right place, they don't make any bombastic statements. They don't come and say, oh, Swamiji, uh, can I touch your feet and so on. It's not necessary, really. These are bombastic, superficial things. They are practiced in India, in the society, because the householders need to have a superficial devotion, a Svadhisthanistic devotion, to some spiritual person, because without that, they would live without spirituality. They would be in the outer darkness. And these people come once a year on a pilgrimage, on a festival. They go to Kumbha Mela. There they bow to everything they see in front of them. They touch the feet of whatever orange shape they see in front of them. And they express some devotion. But they can't do that every day. 
in the everyday life they bargain, they haggle, they scream, they shout, they do all sorts of things. They express their normals, vadistanistic, manipuristic, muladharistic, sometimes lifestyle and level of consciousness. They, you cannot keep that infatuation forever. You fall in love with somebody and you love them madly for six months. And after six months, some people after less, some people after more, they start seeing the defects, the problems. The, and then there starts the grudge, the nagging, the hacking at each other, and all those things, because it was not from the heart. And that is why you cannot really make a permanent relationship just because you are infatuated with somebody. Stay with somebody, make love or stay in a long-term engagement, know each other, and if after five years you still love each other very much, that was not infatuation. The infatuation, the charm, cannot continue for five years. It never does. It, it, it wanes after a while. It ebbs. It just goes away. And therefore, that is exactly what I say. You can have a Svadistanistic person who thinks he or she is the next Milarepa. You get a lot of Svadistanistic people who want to go to the forest and to live like Milarepa. And those people usually go insane or they run away squealing with a tail between their legs like a beaten dog or they start doing some real stupid things or they become neurotic and bitter and disturbed or they become fakes and cheaters. The world of spirituality is full of this. That's why, for example, an experienced spiritual advisor, if one of you comes and tells me, Swami, uh, I want to do like Milarepa, I want to do long-term retreats, you know, you are doing 10-day retreats, I would want to do a six-month retreat, and so on. A person that is a beginner and comes to me like that will almost never, unless I have a glimpse of insight which is divinely inspired and I see that there is something special, such a person will never get a yes from me. Because the person who comes and is a beginner and says, oh, ten days retreats are too little for me. I want to push myself, you know, I want, I want six months, a year, seven years. These people are dreamers. They are exactly like somebody who fell in love sexually with somebody and they are infatuated sexually with somebody. And sooner or later they are going to wake up from this infatuation and say, how did I tie myself up with this person? How did I get in the, oh stupid me, now I have to carry this yoke for the rest of my life, or what? There are people who enter monasteries, take vows, and then they hate it. They want to go out and have sex. They want to go out and do other things. They were not made for the monastery. That's why when you want to go into a monastery, they keep you three years as a novice. They keep you another, I don't know how many years or months, as a postulant. And then they accept you. First of all, you have to see your metal. You have to see what you are made of. You have to see, you know, it, let's make sure it's not an infatuation. That's exactly what Krishna implies here. He says it is very difficult to reach to actual renunciation without yoga because you are supposed to be in sahasrara 
how would you have Sahasrara without having done yoga? Maybe a person in a million is born from a previous life with a major arousing of Sahasrara, and because of this they have it spontaneously. They are like born for monkhood, born for direct detachment and so on, and they go into this life like they are made for, you know, like, like Jesus was born detached, you no? Know? So it's like, of course, in the case of Jesus, you cannot say that whatever he needed. No, we can, it's, it was there. This was a predestined person who was very predestined for a purpose. But otherwise, even renunciation is a very, very special thing, and it comes as a result of a long-term process. You can say in the beginning, yes, I give up everything. I have a moment of clarity. I have a tremor of the heart. I have been touched. I had an awakening of the soul. Yesterday I cried the whole day and I realized what am I doing with my life and now I want to renounce. But a guru like Ramakrishna would always temper down this kind of zeal. When people were going so frantic, Ramakrishna started telling jokes, making fun, you know. Like, don't take yourself so seriously. Take it easy. Preserve a constant sense of humor. And if this thing grows and grows in your heart, then it's the right thing. But if after three months you get bored and look for other excitement, then it was not from the heart. It was a Svadhisthanistic infatuation. It didn't come from the crown chakra. It is not a real talent. Is that some people get infatuated with cross-country skiing, and some people get infatuated with reaching nirvana, because it seems to them that it's a very worthy ideal. Thus, um, Krishna says something very important in terms of renunciation of the real thing. And he continues... He who is devoted to the path of action, which means basically karma yoga, whose mind is quite pure, who has conquered the self, who has subdued his senses, and who has realized his self as the self in all beings, through acting, he is not tainted. He basic, that's the message of karma yoga. That's the lecture of karma yoga, which is a two hour and a half lecture in a nutshell, in three lines. He who is devoted to the path of karma yoga, intent on karma yoga, pure of spirit, who has fully mastered himself and has conquered the senses, and who is aware that his self is one with the self of all beings, he is not involved, tainted by karma, by what else, even while he acts. That's the very fundamental principle of karma yoga. And Krishna tells it to Arjuna, because he advises him to do karma yoga. And he says, all you have to do is you have to be committed. Like, do not be a renunciate. Be a karma yogi. Keep your mind quite pure. Again, in the daily life interaction, the mind gets, you speak to somebody, your mind picks up some shit from that person. Nobody is 100%. Only when you have done three days of non-stop meditation, then you can say, now I weeded my garden out completely. But in the next 24 hours, it's going to pick up some more garbage from the collective subconscious mind or from directly interacting with people. So this is purifying the mind 
is a non-stop process exactly like you have to wash your clothes permanently, you have to wash your body permanently, and some people keep themselves more clean, less clean, depending on their temperament. So he says, keep your mind, stay with karma yoga, keep your mind pure, conquer the self, like conquer yourself, be master yourself and subdue the senses, which means don't be a, a slave of your senses. And discovering, that's very important, that it is said here, that his self has become the self of all beings, realized his self as the self in all beings. That's a major realization. That is a realization of bhava, samadhi. That's a realization over the top, because in the beginning, the spiritual realization is, is I have entered in nirvikalpa samadhi. I am the self. I am God. I am the void. I am the Shiva consciousness. Where's the rest? The rest has died, switched off, nirvana, blown off, extinct. The rest ceased to exist for me, as Patanjali says in the Yoga Sutras. In the moment when you enter the Nirvikalpa Samadhi and the soul has reached this Kaivalya, Prakriti for that person disappears. That's the first stage of enlightenment, the Vedantic enlightenment, the enlightenment without Shakti, the enlightenment without nature, without Prakriti, the enlightenment which goes into the void only. But what Krishna says here, when you see the self as the self in all beings, that is the mentality of the Bodhisattva, vow, like I shall stay in this universe until all the sentient beings will be saved from ignorance, therefore forever, because the sentient beings are never really saved completely from ignorance, because new ones are coming up all the time. There is a river of beings, if all the sentient beings would be enlightened, then this universe would cease existing because there would be no more trees and animals and bacteria and other beings which are in a state of ignorance. There will be only enlightened beings and nothing along the path. It's like a convoy, a cortege that has reached with the end part of it, the final destination. Then there is no more convoy. There is no more line of people, but there is an endless line, like a circle, like a wheel. There is a line which never ends. So the Bodhisattva vow, or the Christ-like sphere of consciousness, as Yogananda calls it, that's the statement of Jesus. You gave me food, you gave me to drink, you visited me in prison, you healed me, and when you are going to ask when, I wish I could help Jesus with something, because at least I would get a blessing. Even my ego says, help Jesus, maybe he blesses you, then you are fixed. But Jesus says, truly I tell you that whoever has done it to the least of my brethren has done it to me. So Jesus says, I am every person in this world. So Jesus is there. He has realized his self as the self in all beings. But this is symbolized by the horizontal arm of the cross. The vertical arm of the cross is the union between the individual and God. But then there comes the horizontal one, which simply says the union between the individual and Prakriti, the other individuals, the world. And this is Bhava Samadhi. This is not Nirvikalpa Samadhi. It's beyond 
the Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And that is why here the conditions are pretty steep, like Krishna is not at all modest. He says, he who is devoted to the path of action, whose mind is quite pure, who has conquered himself and subdued his senses, who has full self-control, self-mastery, and who has realized his self as a self in all beings, though acting, he is not tainted. Of course, the bar is high, but Krishna says there is a model of you can act without being touched by karma. And after all, that's the major thing which Arjuna is fearing. He says, if I don't do anything, I am a coward who betrays Dharma, who betrays the order of the universe and the will of God, and I'm going to burn. And if I do it, I'm going to kill my cousins and my teachers. And even if I did it in full righteousness, I'm a bastard and an ungrateful bastard, and I'm going to burn again. So he says, I don't know, to do or not to do, both of them are horrible. And that's why Krishna has to show him, it's not about to do or not to do. It's about who you are, what your state of consciousness is, from where do you come in all that. A little bit more. I do nothing at all, that was quote, that's a sentence, that we're in shloka number eight, because he said, a bird, this is how the person who acts is not touched, and he wants to illustrate it, and he says, I do nothing at all, thus will the harmonized knower of truth think, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, going, sleeping, breathing, that's how he will. He says, I do nothing at all. Who does it? As he said it before, the gunas act upon the gunas. Nature acts upon nature. If there is a big atmospheric depression there, and the big, a big high atmospheric pressure there, then what's going to happen? You are going to have a, thor a storm, a huge storm. The air from there... It's going to rush that way, and in the process it's going to produce thunders, rain, everything. Do you think you have produced the storm? The elements act upon the elements. A hungry tiger kills a gazelle and eats it. This is nature. It's simply the elements acting upon the elements. A hungry tiger will always kill a gazelle or something and eat it. Simply, it's a force of nature. He's, the tiger is not conscious, he does not take any rational decision, it's an animal which follows its nature. On this planet there are carnivorous animals, there are herbivorous animals, every one of them follows their own nature. The tiger can complain to God, why did you make me a tiger? If you made me a tiger, you made me a killer. Therefore, a tiger cannot suppress the killing unless that tiger is a human being and then a human being can make a conscious choice. But the tiger, the gunas, act upon the gunas. So Krishna said that in the chapter number 3 and 4. He already spoke about it, but he is repeating it. He is coming back to Arjuna with it. Like, I do nothing at all. 
I did surgery. I saved this man's life. No, I didn't. I didn't do anything at all. I just witnessed how Mother Nature took over my hands, which are Mother Nature's, and did something. Tied and cut and did something. What did I do? I watched. I didn't do anything. Nature, the gunas did. It so happens that I'm a brilliant surgeon and I'm educated and I'm trained because if I'm not educated and trained, then I should simply stand back and say, no, I'm not qualified for this. But if I'm trained and qualified and this is who I am, I am a tiger. I am a surgeon. I cut people. That's what I do for their own good, incidentally, unless I become a selfish surgeon that is doing useless surgery just to get money and to whatever because I become a bloodthirsty maniac. But otherwise, I'm doing it as a positive thing. But I do it like a tiger. I just look at myself and say, the tiger in me did surgery. I watched. It's not me. I don't mix with that. I can separate from that. I am not the force which did that. That thing happened through my body. But my body is going to die and I am not my body ultimately. My body is just an instrument which I use for a while. There is a huge detachment. Of course, it's difficult to keep it in the daily life when it comes to delicious things, pleasurable things, things which produce attraction and attachment. Then you don't look at it in that way. But Krishna says you should. So... Again, he says, one who is in union with the divine and who knows the truth will maintain, I do not act at all. In seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, walking, sleeping, breathing, speaking, I, sleeping, I said speaking, letting go, seizing, and even in opening and closing the eyes, blinking. He holds simply that the senses act among the objects of senses. This was both shloka 8 and 9. They are split because there is this huge long list and the shlokas have to be elegant two-liners and wanting to insist like everything, everything, everything. And he eventually says even the opening and closing of the eyes to be conscious that, you know, Christian mystics have put it in another way. It's not the gunas who do the gunas. Jesus lives in me. God lives in me. So it is God that eats. It is God that copulates. It is God that blinks. It is God that does everything. God is in me. So I again put my ego aside and I give it to God, to the nature, to the elements, to the gunas. So in eating, going, sleeping, breathing, speaking, letting go, seizing, opening and closing the eyes, convinced that the senses move among the sense objects, like the eyes. The eyes are made to see, as a tiger is made to kill meat. The eyes are made to see, the hands are made to seize and to manipulate, to handle. The sense organs are created by Mother Nature for their purposes. There are five gyanendriyas, five sense organs through which we receive data, which are the nose, the tongue, the eyes, the skin, and the ears, the auditory apparatus. And there are five karmendriyas, 
organs of action through which we produce karma if we are not karma yogis. And those are the anus, the genitals, the arms and the hands, the legs and the feet, and finally the vocals, the speech, the vocal apparatus. We produce karma with all of those, of course, in different manners, in different ways. And that's why here is a norm, like where do you want to reach in karma yoga? No, oh, you sweeped the floor this morning. A Christian mystic will say, no, God sweeped the floor. In Buddhism, they will say there is no self. There is no, you know, the gunas swept the floor, which is made of gunas. No, there is which me. There is no me. I didn't sweep the floor. Krishna would say the same. I am the witness. I am the Atman. And therefore, I do nothing at all. I do not act at all. So he basically tells to Arjuna, go to war, kill them, and simply feel I didn't do anything. These people got killed by a tiger, by a storm, by a tsunami. It's the nature which acts upon the nature. I am the tiger of God. I am the tsunami of God. I am the lightning bolt of the gods. People, you know, like it's a very peculiar angle which is so easy to misinterpretation because of course if the detachment is not there and this thing is not authentic, then theoretically for some people it can be like a license to anything because it sounds so easy. Okay, you say I do not act at all. But the question is can you believe it? Is that authentic or are you faking? If you are faking in the moment when you'll die, your subconscious mind will take over and you'll not be able to stop your higher self from bursting out in a sort of judgment day and telling you no. Actually you did it. Look, at my deeper level here, you believe very clearly that you did it. It was all just a pretense. You lied even to yourself. Well, when you lie to yourself, you pay through the nose. It's as simple as that. That is why, of course, this Bhagavad Gita is an extreme circumstance. But at the same time, exactly because it is extreme, it sets the standards very high. Because it's like you can't joke with it. It's death or life. You do it right or you burn. And thus, that is precisely why it is illustrated in such an extreme. And the next metaphor is one of the beautiful classical metaphors, one of the last shlokas that we are going to comment tonight. And in the shloka number 10, he therefore says, he who performs actions, offering them to Brahman, to God, to the Buddha nature, to the void, to the Buddhas of the past, present and future, to Shambhala, to God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, whatever, it doesn't matter. Everything which you call that is something which your subconscious mind is trying to denominate, something which has no name anyway. But therefore, the point is, he says, so it doesn't matter what we call God. Often in Bhagavad Gita, God is called Brahman or Krishna simply says, me, he, himself. He who performs actions, offering them to Brahman and abandoning attachment. These are the two things which we teach you in the Karma Yoga lecture in the first level. Which are the two conditions? 
offering them to Brahman, that's consecration, and abandoning attachment, that's detachment. Every time when we teach the Karma Yoga lecture, we tell you the two conditions of Karma Yoga, detachment and consecration. Only we teach them in the opposite order. Here Krishna mentions them in the reverse order. He who performs actions, one, offering them to Brahman and abandoning attachment, actually the logical order is the other way because you cannot truly offer them, consecrate them to God unless you renounce them to start with and you abandon your attachment. So the first step is that you detach yourself and you abandon attachment and then you offer them precisely because now you have abandoned attachment. So he who performs actions offering them to Brahman and abandoning attachment is not tainted by sin as a lotus leaf by water. That's one of the classic ones like the swan comparison in Indian spirituality as the lotus leaf by water. Take a lotus leaf out of the water, it's a tissue which is waxed. And because it's waxy, the water does not adhere to it. You just shake it, it's not wet. The lotus leaves are not wet intrinsically like a piece of paper that would be put in water and would get imbibed by water. The lotus leaf is impermeable to water because it has a special wax-like structure. And because of it, that comparison is used also with the birds, with the aquatic birds that have their plumage smeared with a grease and because of that grease their feathers don't get wet. They get drops of water but as soon as the bird shakes they fall off. If a dog goes into the water its, its, its fur would stay wet for a while. But a swan coming out of the water is not wet. It's just the water is dropping out immediately. In the same way, this has always been the dream of Buddha and of the Indian spiritualists. When you die, you should do like this and be free. There should be no karma. Whatever you have done in your life uh, should not hang on you. In the moment when you die, this should be your last death on planet Earth. You come back only if you are compassionate and want to help. But for the rest... There will be no humidity, no weight to pull you back. Nothing will pull you back because you are free of karma. If you die and keep some karma, your karma will bring you back into the next incarnation. It is the karma which always brings one back. And therefore, this simply reflects the ideal of so much into the Indian spirituality. He who acts giving over all actions to the universal being, abandoning attachment, is untouched by sin as a lotus leaf by water. Notice that here Krishna does not use the word action. He could say that person is not touched by action as the lotus leaf by water. He uses the word sin because he is actually pushing Arjuna in doing something which would be considered a sin. It's not just any act. He sends Arjuna, sweep the alleys, clean the compound, uh, water a tree, do, and then you are not going to be touched by it. Arjuna would have been uh, more easy. He wouldn't have taken 18 chapters of explanations to accede to that. But precisely because Arjuna is confronted with the unspeakable, 
with the unthinkable which he has to do precisely this gives to Krishna the opportunity to push the envelope to the maximum like if this is possible for this circumstance then it's possible for everything like then for other nice things in life that Swami Shivananda build a hospital or a leper colony or a university or a printing press or a kitchen for the babas or an ashram or I don't know that's nothing compared to what Arjuna is about to do and that's why um, here it simply this simply allows us to stretch it to the ultimate limit because ultimately we're talking about war homicide we're talking about murder under one form, either justified or not, people can justify, and the human history has justified these things all the time, one way or another. And of course, we can be puritanically perfectionistic and say, no, there is no way to justify that. At the same time, Krishna being realistic and living in a world in which the tiger eats the gazelle, Krishna therefore is giving to Arjuna a complete teaching although of course it's a bitter pill to swallow it is and it's a very high stake which he sets so this is here this chapter is so rich because it confirms the teachings which you get on karma and of course it confirms them because I did not invent them and my teachers did not invent them these teachings are 4,000 plus years old and this is the fundamental teaching on karma yoga and that is why here of course was I do not act at all it is the gunas which act upon the gunas and in the shloka number 10 with which we conclude the things tonight is other conditions performing actions by being detached and offering them to God consecrating the performing actions with detachment and consecration one is not tainted by karma by sin as the lotus leaf is not imbibed by water is not impregnated by water that is the message and it's clear in the next evenings we will continue with more of the message of Krishna it is now time to remain silently in a meditation for two three minutes so that we calm our spirit after all this knowledge so that this knowledge this divine knowledge can fall in the right place can settle down be absorbed harmoniously and after a few moments of silence and meditation we conclude we are done for tonight let us remain in silent meditation and absorb the wisdom of Krishna
And that will do. With this, we conclude. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Next Thursday, I will continue from shloka number 11 with the further teachings of Krishna.